Welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm Clara Kirk. And I'm Marjorie Lotfi-Gill. We are the two founders of Open Book and we are delighted to be taking over this podcast. This is the second of our Open Book takeovers. Today we're talking about Louis Sagasti's book, A Musical Offering, and Alicia Permohamed's poem, Hinge. But first, maybe we should stop and say a little bit about what Open Book is, Claire. We are a shared reading and creative writing charity that works right across Scotland in all kinds of sectors, in hospitals, in prisons, in libraries. We run lots of public groups. We work with refugee and migrants. We work on islands off of Shetland and all the way over to Trenrar and Eymouth. We're right across Scotland running groups where people get together. And at the moment we get together online, but generally in person, read together and talk about text. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. And we're delighted that you've joined us. And we're hoping that this morning will be a little taster of how our normal open book sessions would run. We're going to read the extract from Louis Sagasti's book aloud, and then we're going to have a chat about it. Yeah, and we should say right now, neither of us are experts on Lewis's subject. Well, I shouldn't speak for you, Claire, but I'm not an <laughs> expert on very many subjects. So the idea is that we come to it as you might, and we talk about it in the way that just a normal punter might. So we're glad that you're joining us, and we'd love to hear your feedback what we've had to say this morning. I feel that's particularly important to say given the subject matter of this extract, but we'll get into that in a minute. And you can read the extracts we'll read today on our website, openbookreading.com forward slash unbound. In the Wigtown Book Festival special newsletter you'll find there. Well, I just get us started. I should say ahead of time, you can catch Louise Sagasti's event at the book festival on Saturday the 3rd of October at 5pm. That's chaired by yours truly. So if you want to see what I look like in person, I want to um, feed through any questions that I should ask him, please do ahead of time. Okay, so this is a section of his book. The book is called A Musical Offering. The section that we're going to read today is called Lullaby. No one knows why an 18th century count, with no problems other than those that come with his position, palace intrigues, the damsel's jealousy, the tedium of protocol, is unable to make peace with his conscience and get to sleep at night, as is God's will and his own fervent desire. Like all of us, Count Kaiserling believes that lying awake in the dark when everyone else has left for the land of Nod is a form of punishment, a punishment that equalizes Insomnia makes no distinctions when it comes to expiating sins. As the nobility have always done, Count Kaiserling attacks the symptom rather than the cause. He commissions the cantor of St. Thomas of Leipzig, one Johann Sebastian Bach, to create a composition that will lull him to sleep at last. In recompense, he offers a silver goblet, overflowing with gold louis. There was no need for such generosity. After all, it was the Count himself who had secured the composer his post in the court of Saxony. Bach more than rises to the occasion, composing an aria to which he adds 30 separate variations. The compositions are linked not by melody, but by the bass line, the harmonic foundation. 
The person charged with delivering these musical sleeping pills is an extraordinary harpsichordist who is not only capable of playing anything that is put in front of him, but also can read a score upside down, like a rock star playing a guitar behind his back. His name is Johann Gottlieb Goldberg. He is young, which is to say impetuous and pretentious. Nevertheless, he practices the most difficult passages in the evenings to avoid surprises, and he tries to find the right tempo that will help the nobleman drift off. In honor of its first performer, and thanks to the alacrity with which he undertook his charge, posterity would christen this series of compositions the Goldberg Variations. The most famous performance of the Variations, a feat not unlike swimming across the Magellan Strait, is by the Canadian pianist Glenn Gould. In fact, he recorded two, between them stretched 26 years in the life of a planet. The first version is as urgent and flamboyant as Baroque music permits and was taped in 1955 when Gould was just 23 years old. The second is a recording made shortly before he died from a stroke at the age of 50, in 1981. For all his genius, Gould couldn't escape the fate of the wise. The slower pace of the later version is that of someone who knows we only leave a circle before taking the first step. It's an intriguing start. It is. Did you know this story before you read it? No. I think there's a huge amount of myth of the Goldberg Variations. And speaking to an artist or composer friend recently, he said, you know, although Sagasti presents it as truth, there's a lot of question around this composition and also the age of the harpsichordist Goldberg, who was commissioned to play them. So I I like the way that he presents it as, as the story. So there's doubt around whether they were composed for Count Kaiserling, or there's doubt around... Um, whether he composed them as a sort of sleeping pill. I think that's the myth, but apparently, and again, I don't know, if you go back into the records, the harpsichordist of the court at the time would have been about 12 years old. (laughs) So it's unclear whether the story holds true. But I like the way it's presented here um, because it works as a story, doesn't it? I love the idea of a musical sleeping pill. It's almost like Pavlov response, isn't it? Pavlovian response to hearing the same piece of music night after night. When you hear it, that's the point at which you drift off to sleep. But the twist in the tale here is that, of course, it's not the same piece of music every night, is it? With the 30 variations. I think the idea behind the tunes, if you know them, is that they just go one into the other. And the important piece at the end links with the beginning. So you can play them in a circle. So it's seamless. You could put it on you know, that little, as we all now know it on Spotify, they repeat sign the little circle and you wouldn't necessarily notice because the one runs into the other. You'd have to be clever enough to be able to pick out that you're hearing one of 30 tunes a second time. And I think that's sort of what Bach was counting on. Yeah, that was his get out clause, wasn't it? <laughs> if he didn't manage to get Kaiserling off to sleep on one loop, he wasn't going to lose his goblet of gold Louis because he hadn't done his job. Well, and imagine thinking now that we've never heard of this count before, or I hadn't, but the idea that someone like Bach hadn't done his job is a funny thing to say out loud anyway for however many hundreds of years later. I want to ask about this idea that, that, that started the whole piece off, this idea that insomnia is a kind of punishment, this idea that it's a great equaliser. 
you know, it's often what we say about our open book groups. The, the model of what we do is a great equalizer because it doesn't matter if you have a PhD or someone who doesn't really like to read. It's an equalizer. All your opinions can be heard at the same level because we're reading things aloud. But it's funny to think that a count would think of insomnia as an equalizer. I think, though, there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? I mean, anyone who suffers from insomnia, and I've never suffered severely from it, but there have been periods in my life where I found getting to sleep, or probably more accurately, getting back to sleep, really difficult. And I guess I have lain in bed thinking about not being the only person in the world who's lying here unable to sleep. It makes me think of the current situation and, uh, you know, how we always think of illness as an equaliser, that, you know, it doesn't necessarily not come for you if you're well off or look after yourself or whatever but and we know that's not true of course when you look at the statistics especially COVID but other kinds of of illness do attack you know those who are less well off but we do think of it as not being able to be immune from it so I wonder if that's what he's thinking there too but of course he's a man who gets someone to play a harp for him (laughs) how often does that happen for you Claire when you can't sleep do you get your harp or harpsichord I was just thinking I might get out of bed and plug into a podcast or plug into a piece of music with my earphones on desperately trying not to wake anyone else in the house but unfortunately my personal harpsichord just did not appear to lull me back to sleep that's a shame we need to we need to have our own personal box in our pocket just going back to your original comment i've never thought of insomnia as a punishment though it's an an interesting idea it makes me think he's possibly done some bad stuff in his life that he feels he's due to be punished yeah Uh, so yeah well maybe most counts in those days did i don't know it sounds like you know he's got palace intrigues so i'm sure yeah he's got some stuff going on I wanted to talk a little bit about gold as well. The only real preparation I did, and I should say, again, I'm no musical expert, but I was listening to a recording of gold talking about these two recordings, and they are recordings that I know. I, I love the, very, the Goldberg Variations and foolishly um, bought a piano and a copy of the Goldberg Variations, which I said to my composer friend this week, and he said, good luck with that, um, trying to play them. But uh, I said, well, surely the opening piece is slow enough that you can, particularly if you play it at gold rate in nineteen in the 80s. But I did know these recordings. They're fascinating, the idea of speed and kind of muscularity as a young person. And then, you know, 30, 20 odd years later, a kind of real sense of time. And one of the things that I, I would notice, but I kind of was really conscious of, which I think relates in, the, in some way to this story, is that the gaps between the variations really matter, which I had never thought of really before as a person who's just listening to the music. I know we've talked about it before, but that, that, you know, that silence is as important as the music itself. And in this case, because there are so many variations, how long you choose to give between each variation really matters. And that feels like that somehow links back to the sleep story, you know, that idea how long your brain is willing to wait before it's entertained again. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Well, I did go back intrigued by this paragraph and listen to the two separate recordings. And I have to say, when I listened to the first one, I was thinking, how on earth could you fall asleep to that? I mean, it's so energetic and vibrant. It's almost a race to get to the end. And it's such a contrast with the second later version where it really becomes a lullaby. So interesting how you could really see the musicality of Gould and how important the interpretation that the player puts on the music changes its characteristic. Because I think before I had maybe thought, well, maybe there's an element to which the player can influence your reaction to the music, but it's really set down on paper, the strictures of the rhythm, the strictures of the dynamics, maybe less so in Baroque music, but certainly, you know, the 
there's pretty clear instructions on how it's to be played and there's not a massive amount of room in I had thought for interpretation but actually it was a really good lesson to listen to those two pieces and just see how much of an input the musician could have on your reaction to the music. But also thinking about Bach one of the things he does as I was saying is you know my, my memory of my kids playing Bach is that they had to take highlighters to the music and follow the different melodies different colors and you'd have two or three different colors running through the whole pieces and how they would come back again and I wondered whether that is a trick to help you sleep you know that way that there's almost too much for your brain to follow and that it kind of reminded me a wee bit of the um, idea of circadian rhythms and the way our, our sleep is a rhythmic thing and that you have your deep sleep and your light sleep and your and for me the 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 music kind of reflects that so you can almost pick out the rapid eye movement dream sequence bits and then the more peaceful restorative sleep but just before we leave the discussion of the um the pieces themselves i would recommend uh, if you're going to listen to them looking them up on youtube which is what i did so it's not just the experience of listening to it but it's actually watching them being played and i think it's really interesting and astonishing the speed of the finger movements and the accuracy in the first piece compared to it almost feels like more technical master more comfortable in his own skin playing in the second piece and all played well the, the the versions i saw were played without a score yeah yeah so he'd obviously committed it all to memory which as an adult learner of a musical instrument is to me just astonishing you know i, I as you know marjay took up the flute about five years ago it's given me if nothing else, a huge appreciation of people's skill and talent in playing such complicated pieces, particularly without the music. Shall I read on to the, the end of this passage that we've picked out today? Yeah, definitely. Despite his surname, the Count is Russian and an ambassador to the court of Saxony. This makes for a reassuring diplomatic immunity. Soirees or rather, the palace lives in a permanent state of soiree, wild boar and candied treats in the evenings, and insomnia. Kaiserling has a valley who is more like a confidant. His name is Vasha, and he only speaks Russian. Through the open door of the bedchamber, the music drifts in along with the draught, and sleep too, it is hoped. Vasha's task is to shut the door, once he hears the Count snoring. Spoknoya nochi, he says, just after ten. Good night. The valley leaves the bedchamber, taking with him the candelabrum, which he carries to the adjacent room where Goldberg is waiting. He places it on a table and nods to indicate that the recital should begin. Kaiserling opens his eyes observes the half-darkness of the room where the music comes from and closes them again. The bed covers are pulled up to his chin and he wears a nightcap. Vasya stands to one side, follows Goldberg's hands. Goldberg, the score. The next day, the Count makes an observation, almost an order, the lapse between each variation should be shorter. When this gap of silence occurs, it is filled with expectation, making it impossible for him to fall asleep. On that first night, however, Vasha hears the Count snoring 
before the seventh variation begins. He closes the door to the room. Goldberg, the lid of the harpsichord. Where the corridor forks, they bid each other good night in Russian and in German. The valley descends the staircase. Goldberg heads for the other wing of the house in search of wine and conversation. The pauses between each variation are no small matter. No pauses. And Glenn Gould knows this better than anyone. He has understood. And perhaps as the nights go by, Goldberg perceives it too. That in reality, there is no interruption between the movements. Herein dwells the music that can only be found by the sense of touch. When Gould ends each of the variation, his body keeps moving. As videos clearly show, his left hand trembles blindly and his arm shifts. A dragonfly sensing the still nascent music. He plays without a score. In this interstice, in this crevice that separates each variation, emerges the music that sends the Count to sleep. We may deduce that Gould is repeating Kaiserling's own movements as he drifts into slumber. These slight spasms that occur during the pauses are known as myclonic seizures. They are a contraction and relaxation of the muscles that we experience during the initial phases of sleep. Practising, Goldberg discovers that the pauses between the variations shouldn't be uniform. For example, between the 13th and 14th, barely a breath should be taken, while between the 7th and 8th, a more ample silence is imposed. That's not how he plays them, however. The idea is for the count to get to sleep as quickly as possible, so the pauses must be short. Kaiserling was clear about that, and he's the one paying after all. On the second night, the Count fails to recognise the melody. He has an ear for music and good taste, people say, but lacks a memory prodigious enough to notice if the music is the same, as he will only realise much later. This time, the first snores arrive during the eighth variation. After the thirtieth variation, the work concludes with a da capo aria that introduces the idea of circularity. The first theme, which opens the series, is repeated at the end. Everything starts over. This is Bach's surety in the event that Kaiserling fails to fall asleep. And if sleep doesn't come, will the Count realise that everything has begun again? Will the same images illuminate his thoughts? Will his movements in bed repeat themselves? Shall we talk about silence for a minute? I think we touched on it earlier, but it's really fascinating idea, isn't it, of the space between the variations being the place where the music happens that actually enables him to fall asleep. Yeah, and that's the thing that annoys him is he says it's the anticipation of what's coming, but I think there has to be a gap. You know, there has to be one tune to the next. And it's interesting to listen to Gold's recordings because the spaces really vary the second time around as well. 
I think for me as well, it's a case of needing time for my brain to process what I'm hearing and having a sense of my brain catching up, what my ear is taking in. And it reminded me very much of being at a poetry reading. Yeah. So when a poet um, finishes a piece and then is about to move on to, to the next piece in their set, as it were, um, I, I often feel, oh, just give me a minute. Just give me a minute. I need, I need to... You know, my ear has heard it, but my brain is still thinking about what I've heard. And when I was listening to the variations, I had that same sense of needing the gaps. Here's a question about the text. A couple of questions I have about this bit that you read. The first, there's a sentence in there that there's, in reality, no interruption between the movements. Herein dwells the music that can only be found by the sense of touch. What does that mean? Because I don't, I don't actually think that's true. If we're talking about silences... We're not talking about music that can be found with a sense of touch. For me, it was just what the brain does. It's how the brain carries on the music or finishes the music or moves from one movement, one variation to another. So the silence for me isn't a dead space, as it were. It isn't an empty space. It's almost a transition. It was the, the word touch confused me slightly because, you know, the fingers are no longer on the keys. Mm, that's the thing that confused me too. But I, but I wonder if it's touching a more, your own touch, your own, what you bring to it, your own influence, your own interpretation. Now that makes sense. And already, if you know the pieces, you can hear the next tune start before, you know, it always confused me. It's a bit like being a teenager and listening to the same record or cassette over and over again. So even now when someone plays one tune, I can hear the tune that's next on the cassette or would have been next on the cassette on the whole tune. So I, that's true of the variations for me too. I can hear what's coming next. And I don't know if you listen to them, but I don't know how anyone could sleep through some of them. They're really yeah, exactly. He was banking. Yeah. He wasn't just banking as Sagasti says at the end of being able to repeat at the beginning and that's his get out clause. I mean, he was banking on him, them falling, him falling asleep a lot earlier than that, as far as I can tell, because some of them are just definitely not sleep throughable, I think. But do you know what it made me think of? It made me think of those like sort of noisy, fast passages, but they're very, they're still very rhythmic and there is repetition. In them. It made me wonder about that idea of white noise. You know, when the kids were babies and the way that they would get to sleep was if you put the hairdryer on or the hoover on or now I'm not saying that the Goldberg variations <laughs> are equivalent to the Hoover. We're going to have a whole slew of emails complaining that we've likened the Goldberg variations to the Hoover. Exactly. But it was it made me do, because I was thinking, how on earth can Bach have conceived this as a piece to put someone off to sleep? And then I did think, oh, actually, you know, there were times when I was I had a baby in a crib and was blow drying my hair, having managed to grab a shower, you know, late morning and turn around to find the child was asleep having tried all morning to get it to sleep and it was that noise I have a completely different theory I have a theory that in as I was talking about before that there are so many different melodies running through that the brain is just distracted it's a bit like you know if you stub your toe pinching yourself and your brain can't cope with too much information at one time so it can't follow that many things at one time what I do think about it is is because your brain is trying to follow more than one thing, it stops thinking about the thing it's worrying about, you know, which it might be court intrigue in this case. So it's trying to follow one or two or three lines of music, and therefore there's no room for anything else, none of the usual worries. So for me, that's why Bach could be soporific, even though it doesn't sound it. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that crossed my mind is, is sometimes when you can't get to sleep, it's because you're not mentally tired enough. You might be really physically tired, but your brain is still you know, performing somersaults. 
And I wondered if part of the process of getting you off to sleep was just giving your brain a massive workout for 10 minutes to exhaust you. Well, I was going to ask you as a way of finishing up, Sagasti, what music would you fall asleep to? What music do you fall asleep to if you're willing to share? So I would fall asleep to words rather than music. So I would listen to a podcast. I think with music, there's a little bit of me that wants to hear to the end. Yeah, well, I'm like that with audiobooks, which is why I stopped listening to them when I went to sleep, because I just wouldn't sleep because I wanted to hear the story. So I would definitely choose music. And what piece would you choose or what? I would probably choose something like Arvo Parts choral music, um, because it just allows a lot of space. It doesn't require a huge amount of engagement. And again, I know it, so my brain isn't really actively listening anymore. It's just off in a different place, something like that. Well... I will try the Goldberg Variations second version <laughs> and see if it works. And I shall pass on my experience to you so you can uh, decide whether or not to adopt it. Yeah, and we'd love to hear from you about whether you listen, you'd listen to the Goldberg Variations or what you recommend for sleeping in terms of music. It'd be really interesting to see what other people are listening to and what, what people find works because um, I haven't tried too many different things. You can drop us an email at info at openbookreading.com if you'd like to send us your thoughts and ideas. We really do love hearing uh, from you and, and getting your take on what we've been talking about. Yeah, and if you do that before Saturday, I can chat about it during the event, which would be really good fun. Shall we swap over to the poem? Yes, let's do that. We're going to read one of Alicia Pir Mohammed's poems, She's one of our Tea With Words readers for the Wigtown Festival this year, book festival this year. She's already read on the 27th, but you can go back and listen to her, do her reading, and we recommend it completely. Um, she was the winner of the Edwin Morgan Prize this year. Um, she's also done very well in the Wigtown Poetry Competition in years past. So she's someone we've had our eye on for ages. So go and listen to her read her poems, but we're gonna, I'm going to read this one of hers, and then we're going to chat about it. Hinge. Tonight I am all joint and animal dark. My heel blots out the moon, vanishes the small nod of light, and yes, I prayed today, verging into my bismala before settling on the broken. I stoop into my longings, plot a seed in every crevice. Last week, I titled another page with my body and surrendered every bending, splitting line of myself to the making. When we refer to plants, we call this positive phototropism, a body rivering towards the light. I want to river towards the light. I want to lean my neck toward a thing until I too become ism, scientific and named into truth. Today I walked through a dream that wasn't mine and I thought of you waiting at the end of it as if to gather me. And maybe that's just the kind of woman I am. No matter how many times I have the moon or find myself in a room without a window, I know Allah sees everything. Every hand planting something new, every metaphor for the tree it becomes. And yes, I pray today, but planting my palms together has never felt like blossoming up the side of a mountain. The only time these hands have ever flowered have ever been used for something good 
was that spring at Yamnuska where we found a clear blue door of glacial water and I walked right through your reflection. I think one of the reasons we chose this poem was for its musicality. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me like a song. Yeah, that you need to listen to over and over again to try and, you know, and it's one of these things that will reveal itself to you over and over in different ways. It feels like she goes, and referring back to the variations, it feels like she goes back to something over and over, trying different ways, opening herself up for her work, as she talks about in the second stanza titling another page with her body and surrendering everything to it, but then also planting seeds in those openings. It has something about it that the variations do, which is going back at something over and over again, trying something different, trying something different, trying something different. I don't know if you read that into it as well. Yeah, I mean, it felt a very creative poem. It felt that there was lots of birth and rebirth and making and doing and feeling all encapsulated in it. Although it's gentle and lyrical and rhythmical, it feels like there's lots of thinking and doing. And I I really loved that sense of creation that comes from it. Yeah, and it feels like a longing for more. This idea of a body rivering towards light. And I know I keep reading towards, and it's toward in the poem, so apologies, Alicia. Yeah, the idea that we're moving towards something, that we're continually moving. So, And she's trying. She's trying a prayer. She's trying writing. She's trying all sorts of things, other people's dreams. You know, every stanza feels like she's trying a different version that maybe isn't working. And at the end, she goes back to prayer, but planting her palms together has never felt like a blossoming. But she wants that, doesn't she? She wants to river towards the light and she wants the change. There's not a sense of her being content where she is or happy with what's happening at the moment. She's. It feels like the, there's a drive behind the writing to do more or learn more or discover more. And not just a drive, like a, she uses the word surrender. There's a real vulnerability here, I think which I admire her for, acknowledging, admitting that she's given everything to her, writing to this journey, you know, she's splitting herself open, which, you know, she's not holding anything back. Those are words that often make me think of Adrian Rich, not holding anything back for your work. It's a, I think they come up in a poem called Paula Becker to Clara Westhoff, that idea of not holding back. And she, I feel like she, not only is she telling us she's not doing that, but she isn't actually doing it in the poem. She's She's acknowledging all the different ways she's working on this growth and that it fails, you know, in the la- at the end, towards the end, it feels like she's saying, well, she tried this and it, it didn't work. But what's interesting to me about the end of the poem, I'm not sure we get an answer, but she's saying the only time something's flowered is when she's walking through someone else's reflection. And that feels like, you know, if you visually for me, that brings an image of walking through a puddle or walking through a river where, you know, you disturb a reflection. Um, And it feels like a real sense of self, like she suddenly is the creator of the image or the reflection, or at the very least she has the power to disturb it. It surprised me that it wasn't her reflection. She's walking through someone else's reflection. Oh, but that doesn't, it it makes sense to me in the context of this poem, because it feels like she's taking back the power for herself. 
So she's not disturbing. I guess maybe, as you say, she's continually, re or I was saying, she continually regrowing or trying different things. So it would make sense to kind of destroy an earlier image of herself to create a new one. And, and that that was the image that I had that, you know, she was she was getting rid, in my mind, that's what she was doing. She was getting rid of that old reflection and creating something new. And then I almost noticed afterwards that it was your reflection that she had but she does say in the poem, you know, she walks through a dream that isn't hers. And maybe that's just the kind of woman I am, you know, that line. And maybe that's just the kind of woman. It seems like a real admission of failure, you know, because that's the kind of thing someone says, like, even little children or, you know, you're a big meanie. Well, maybe that's just who I am. You know, that's a real admission of it's not failure. It's kind of giving in. I don't know. That language for me is a kind of giving in to other people's expectations or refusing to say no I'm not like that and refusing to fight back and that for me was a, you know a real contrast that language of that's the kind of woman I am such a contrast with the language that went before where she says I want to lean my neck toward you know and I had this image of almost of a child you know when they're stretching they've been told to sit still and they want to answer a question in class and their neck stretches out as they try and push themselves forward and and that is such a contrast with that well the acceptance almost that comes with that that's the kind of woman I am. For me, it has a huge resonance for having kind of immigrant parents with a huge amount of expectation in terms of who you are and where you end up in life. And that those lines of walking through a dream that wasn't mine feels like it encapsulates that. And I know she's the child of immigrants as well. And she's from Canada originally, but lives in Scotland. But I, I wonder, for me, it resonates with that idea that you have to do certain things as an immigrant child. And that dream that wasn't mine is, you know, in my case, maybe going to law school or whatever it was, you know, which I don't regret necessarily, but it certainly wasn't my dream, you know, and maybe that's just the kind of woman I am as a kind of admission that we, even though you might have your own path, you still have to carry on with the niceties for the generation before you, given all that they gave up to create them for you. So that's me projecting my own personal history onto those lines. But I think knowing Alicia's background a little bit, there's maybe something in that, I don't know. And walking through someone else's reflection feels very empowering in the sense that she's been able to disrupt, disrupt it, you know, to sort of find a sense of her own self. At the very least, she's not seeing her own, but at the very least, she's able to disrupt what other people or somebody else in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it does leave you with a sense of, okay, what's happening next? <laughs> very much what you, you know, you've, you've created this clean slate almost now. You've discharged your responsibilities to others now what are you going to do now that you have this blank page yeah I had a very much you go girl feeling at the end of it yeah, which is not exactly. very poetic <laughs> but that thing of you know being glad for her and that title hinge it's almost you know on the on the precipice of tipping over opening a door and we're going back and forward between you know what's expected of you and what you want or where you're leaning that whole image that you've just described of leaning out trying something new and then coming back to what you know or what's expected of you is a really beautiful one that she's she's set out for us here thank you alicia for for lending us your poem for this podcast yeah i love that i love that one so I think that's all from us today um, on the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. Thanks so much to the team at Wigtown for allowing us to take over your ears for this period. We really hope that you'll join us at the Sagasti event 
this coming weekend and that you'll send in anything that you want me to ask ahead of time. That would be lovely to hear. But also any um, corrections, suggestions, other ideas about what we've been talking about. Because as we've said, we are not musical experts for sure. Many of you know much more about the subject than we do. And if you would like to find out a bit more about our work and where you can join us for weekly reading groups um, or creative writing sessions, you can go to our website, which is openbookreading.com and sign up for our newsletter there and that will keep you in touch with all that's going on with Open Book. Yeah, and as you can tell, no prior experience necessary. And in fact, you don't even need to be able to read or want to read along with us. You can just join in. A lot of our groups are happening, all of our groups are happening online at the moment. So it's just a question of dialing in um, and joining in with your either listening or just joining in with your comments and questions as well. So we hope that you'll join us in another one of our groups sometime soon. Thanks so much for being with us. Bye for now.